Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, through the Lord Jesus. Amen. Hypothetical scenario. You're at a holiday gathering with family and friends, and you're having that conversation that I mentioned a few weeks ago, in which someone asks you, how can you say that God is good when all of these catastrophes keep happening today and so many people keep dying from these disasters? And if you remember, we can respond with something like, those catastrophes and all that death are not the will of God. It's the enslavement of creation to the power of death. Let's imagine this morning that that conversation has continued on, and another question eventually gets brought up. If God is so good, if he desires life and abundance, then why let evil continue today? Why allow things like wars and the violence of humanity to go on? Why not intervene and put an end to it if it's what he really wants? Sounds kind of sadistic, don't you think? To be keep sitting up in the heavens waiting to act when there's so much violence? We'll return to that conversation at the end of this sermon. Over the last few weeks, we have been delving into this topic of evil, and today we're going to be finishing that four-week series for our season of Advent. And I've posed this framework to you all of talking about uncreation, creation, and decreation. Uncreation, which we would call like nothing or non-existence, uncreation is represented in the scriptural account by chaotic waters, by darkness, by a barren wasteland in Genesis 1, 2, and even on day 5, through this symbol of the tanin, tanin that I mentioned in our reading, the sea dragon. Creation, on the other hand, is the work and will of God, who is good and who is the fullness of goodness in himself. Everything he does is only good, and it brings about life and flourishing and abundance as he speaks and creates. Decreation is a way of talking about evil as it moves against and away from what God creates and establishes. His will, his purpose is life and abundance. It's to bring about Eden blessing in the world and death and decreation are not his will and purpose. Again, it's the reality of the creation being in chains to the power of death. Last week, we stepped into this topic of spiritual beings and evil. And we noted some really strange things of how these stories of spiritual beings and human beings seem to mirror each other or run on sort of a parallel course together. And the matter of evil, as we talked last week, becomes all the more frightening when we have something that has a will, something that has a mind that plans We talked in the first week about how when the sea rises up with the power of the dragon, it's got no will, no purpose, it's meaningless, and yet it just devastates lives. But when something has a mind and a plan, we learned about how some spiritual beings, in a sense, take on the tanin, the dragon costume. They take the power of non-existence upon themselves. They take the power of anti-will if we understand that in the beginning it's just God's desire and purpose and will. They take upon themselves the power of death and they shape it to their purpose to drag creation into uncreation or into non-existence. And so a serpent shows up in the garden, which should make us think of that scaly tanin. 
And demons cry out against Jesus in our reading last week, and he muzzles them just like he muzzles the sea dragon when he calms the sea. But spiritual beings aren't the only ones who wear this dragon costume, this ancient symbol of a dragon. Humans do it as well. Humans, again, were created to partner with God in the movement of creation. They were to bring God's Eden blessing and order that he established and expanded out into the uncreated and chaotic realms, right? Moving Eden blessing out into the barren wilderness, bring blessing and abundance. God's goal for humanity in some respects is for humans to be in a willing and a intentional, rational relationship with him that they would be devoted to him freely in love, just as he is devoted to them in love. That it is meant to be a relationship of forming and fostering, again, an intentional, willful bond. And that's a really good gift of God, right? The ability to be able to be in a willful and intentional relationship with him. But this very good divine gift of grace in this relationship comes with a very real possibility of turning away. It's not God's will for humanity to do something else with their will and their mind or to turn and devote themselves to something else as if it's God. It's not his will to do that. He's created us for a different purpose, to be in a loving relationship with him. But it brings this possibility of turning away. And when the humans who received God's words stand before a tree of wisdom, one that God said, don't eat from it, right? Learn wisdom from me, not on your own terms. And they are fed lies and the deception from the serpent. They choose to take. And they choose to define what is good in their own eyes. They turn away from what God creates and establishes. And they turn away from what he wills. And even though they're doing what they think is good in their own eyes, they are moving away from the very essence that God gifted them with. And they really seem to be convinced it's good, right? The fruit looks good to eat, it's pleasing to the eye, and it's really beneficial for gaining wisdom. All positive things. They don't set out to do evil, but they end up turning away from what God established them to be, and they themselves become agents of decreation. And the way the scriptural authors will frequently depict this decision to decide good on their own eyes is by imagining human characters as if they are wearing a costume of the Tanin, the dragon. They start resembling and acting like the Tanin. They start resembling this power that moves towards non-existence and uncreation and the danger that it poses. And they wield that costume to their own ends with their will. Cain, as I mentioned the last couple of weeks, Cain is told to subdue this thing called sin. To dominate this thing. And sin is described in Genesis 4 as a creature. It's not actually a creature, but it's this thing that's imagined almost personified as this monster that's crouching at a door to devour and destroy Cain. But Cain doesn't master that monster. Cain instead chooses to define what is good in his own eyes. And good for Cain means becoming that crouching thing himself. 
It means acting like a scaly, deceptive serpent of the field. And in wielding the power of the Tainin, he drags his brother from creation into non-existence with words and actions of deception. I've mentioned that Jacob, again, who becomes the nation of Israel, born, is born grabbing the heel of his brother. And it fits the description of the attack that the serpent does in Genesis 3, striking the heel. And Jacob's life in the scriptures is lived at first like he's just only wearing the dragon costume, causing chaos and disorder, causing all sorts of destruction in his family because he's trying to do what he thinks is good in his own eyes. Individual humans, when they try to define what is good on their own terms, end up living like this chaos monster, bringing about decreation for themselves and for others around them. But the scriptures don't simply describe individual humans as capable of wearing the costume of the Tanin. Cities and kings and their armies are described this way as well. In the book of Daniel, for instance, entire nations are described as these horrifying chaos creatures that come out of the sea. And they cause all sorts of violence and destruction in the world. When nations or groups of people choose to define good for themselves and their own tribe, they too can end up being an embodiment of the dragon and its horrifying decreation. And it's not always very obvious when this happens, right? There are lies. There are deceptions that we believe as human beings that makes it really difficult to sort out what is in fact actually good. You see, I'm not sure that anyone ever really sets out to do evil for the sake of evil. Generally, what we see throughout time are people Individuals, groups, nations choosing to do what they believe is good. Joseph, for instance, at the end of Genesis, when faced with seven years of famine, comes up with a plan to store grain and then disperse it, which is great. But he also chooses not to give it away and spread that Eden blessing to the hungry. Instead, he chooses to sell it for a price to the people. And when they run out of money, he says, fine, sell me your land. They run out of land, fine. Just go ahead and sell me your bodies as well to Pharaoh. I imagine that this seems like a really good idea to Joseph, right? He's feeding thousands of people who are starving. And he's providing for the functioning of the nation that is providing this food. It makes sense that this would seem really good in Joseph's eyes. He didn't set out to do evil. But he ends up contributing to the oppression and the enslavement of the people. Pharaoh, for instance, in the beginning of the Exodus, is faced with an opportunity, a massive influx of immigrants into his country over many years. And Pharaoh does what he thinks is good. He looks at the nations around him and he sees the chaos dragon lurking out there. These other nations with their armies and their weapons. And he is afraid of being destroyed. He's afraid of being dragged into non-existence. He doesn't want to get attacked. And so what does he do? Well, he wants to have food for the nation and he wants protection. These are good things in some sense. It's a desire in many respects for Eden blessing to have food and protection. 
But he goes about securing that Eden blessing by enslaving the immigrant population to their labor. He weaponizes the food supply by controlling all of it in certain cities and storing it up. And then eventually ends up legislating death through what? Waters, right? Those chaotic waters. He set out to do good in his own eyes, but good in his eyes meant wielding the power of the sea dragon. He saw the danger of non-existence out there and he chose, all right, I'll take that power on myself to make sure that we have enough and make sure that I am secure. And it meant using the fear of decreation in order to maintain order. And in doing so, he did massive evil. Ezekiel 29 takes up the topic of Pharaoh And to be fair, and to try to avoid kind of being anachronistic today, this is an entirely different pharaoh. A few hundred years later, sort of different kind of pharaoh. It's about different concerns and the political climate in those days. What seemed to be going on is that Israel was in danger of going into exile under Babylon. And Israel at that time was not trusting in Yahweh's promises, but instead was forming alliances with other nations, specifically Egypt. They saw the threat of Babylon out there. They saw the threat of non-existence. And they looked to Egypt and said, you protect us and you save us. But through, it seems, lies and deception and broken promises, they were abandoned. But I chose this section from Ezekiel for us today because Pharaoh and all of Egypt, Ezekiel says, are described in terms of the Tanin. To be fair, so is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon in portions of the scriptures. The imagery shows up elsewhere, but I chose this one for us today. Pharaoh in this portion is specifically called the great Tanin lying in the streams of the Nile. And some see this as uh, Pharaoh being described like a crocodile. But the word Tanin doesn't refer to crocodiles. Again, it refers to this idea of the dragon Plus, if you follow along in the imagery, if all of the fish of the Nile are going to stick to his scales, crocodile's not big enough, right? You can't get all the fish of the Nile stuck to the scales of a crocodile. No, Pharaoh and his power structure and all of his uh, different ways of being and his different advisors and workers, the people of the nation, are imagined as a massive monster lurking in the depths of the Nile. And he lies there smug and massive, telling himself, the Nile is mine. I made it for myself. God's response to this massive sea monster, throw a hook in its mouth. Make all the fish of the stream stick to its scales. All its advisors, all the people in their power, all the oppression of Egypt, make it cling to its scales and rip it out of the lair of its water and chuck its body out into the barren wasteland to die. And the wild animals of the desert will come and feast on its body. God's response to the dragon? Destroy it. Stop the power of decreation. Stop the threat and fear of non-existence. Remove the power of death and its domination and stranglehold that it has. He's going to make Egypt a desolate wasteland, Ezekiel declares. And Ezekiel describes it as if all are destroyed. It's taken the sword against man and beast. No humans, no beasts in the land. But then he starts talking about exile. Egypt is going to go into exile for 40 years. 
This is weird because God is talking about Egypt in the same terms that he talks about Israel in the Exodus. It's like a weird backwards Exodus story. The Israelites leave Egypt and they end up in a barren wasteland for 40 years. But this time Egypt is the one being cast out, out into the wilderness for 40 years. And then we hear something shocking. God is going to lead Egypt back to its land. He's going to restore the land of Egypt to the people of Egypt. He is promising to do for Egypt what he's going to do for Israel and Babylon. He's treating Egypt the same way he is going to treat his promised chosen nation of Israel in those days. Bring them back from where he scattered them. This is crazy, right? He's talking about an enemy of the people of God as if they're his beloved people. And he's going to lead them out of their captivity. But this restoration means a complete change in the people and their behavior. They come back humble. We start out with Pharaoh and all Egypt described as this Tanin lurking in the waters, boasting, I made the Nile and it's mine. And then the people come back as the weakest nation. No longer able to oppress other peoples, Ezekiel says. No longer able to boast. No longer striving to try to dominate other peoples. And Ezekiel closes it out by saying, and then they will all know that I am the Lord. God rips off and destroys the dragon costume. The dragon costume is a danger for us all. It's a danger and a reality today as peoples bomb one another and go to war against one another. It's a danger in our own lives when we choose what is good for me and my tribe over against others in the midst of like public policy. The dragon costume is a dangerous reality that we put on at times in our marriages in our own families when we demean one another or strive to see ourselves as somehow a bit more human than others. And it can be really subtle. A harsh word here or there, a cold shoulder here or there. All of it is evil when we do it. It's all against what God desires. It's all taking on this costume and demeaning and diminishing what God created. But God is thoroughly committed to his good creation. He's committed to rescuing his creation. And we get these remarkable stories of him conquering the dragon and removing its power from people, even in order to save them. Like this promise to save Egypt. Egypt was the embodiment of the dragon, and yet they come back no longer oppressing the people. Imagine if the threat of decreation didn't exist. If there was no real danger to us losing God's blessing and abundance. If we didn't look at other human beings and feel the urge to wield power over and against them in order to protect ourselves and our crew. Imagine what that might be like if there was no fear of death and destruction. The birth of Jesus is the promise of the crushing of the head of the serpent. It is the power and love of God to send Jesus to rip off and destroy the Tanim. And he's a king who shows up in the world not to exert his power through force and decreation. But I mean, notice like what I said to the kids a minute ago. Where is he laid? He's laid in a feeding trough, right? 
Pharaoh says, the Nile is mine, I made it, and it's a complete lie and deception. Jesus can look at the whole world and say, I made it, it's mine, and where does he lie down? In a feeding trough with a poor family. He rather instead exerts his power through compassion and mercy, through a willingness to suffer and die under the powers of decreation, to be put to death, because he refuses refuses to act like how humanity has been acting throughout history. He refuses to wear the Tanin costume and wield the power of decreation in a way that destroys his creation. Instead, he crushes death under his feet three days later. And he's promised to swallow up death forever. And by his power, he is robbing the dragon of its destructive power, ripping out its teeth, And showing us a new way. A new way of being clothed in the spirit. Clothed with humility and grace and mercy. God is fully committed to destroying the power of the dragon. And this should fill us and does fill us by his spirit with empathy. And with longing as the people of God. It means that God has seen the complexity of the situations of this world. The complexity of good creatures created for a relationship with him who keep choosing to wield destruction rather than trust in his goodness and abundance. God sees all of the complexity of that and rather than annihilating his creatures, he's going to rip off the costume and bring healing to his creation so that the power of decreation is no longer a threat to what he has made. This means we can look at other human beings with understanding And with compassion, because we're all suffering in the same way, in similar ways. It means we can also take a very serious look at ourselves and call on God to help us have wisdom, to discern what is in fact good and what is in fact evil, because it is so hard to discern those things today. But we keep going to him to rely on him for his wisdom and our behaviors, and our thoughts. Back to our hypothetical. If God is so good and desires life in abundance, then why let evil continue today? Why allow the wars and the violence of humanity to continue? Why not intervene and put an end to it? Sounds kind of sadistic, don't you think? To let all this violence go on and just keep waiting to act? We might respond with something like, I don't know why it's taking so long. I really have no idea why he hasn't sent Jesus back. I trust that it's what he desires to do, and I trust it's why he raised Jesus from the dead, is to swallow up death someday. He wants evil and war and greed and all the evil that I contribute to as well to come to an end. And I do trust that he's acted in Jesus, but it sounds like that's not, that's not what you're saying. It sounds like if I'm hearing you right, that the evil and violence in the world is burdensome. And it's something you grieve. I grieve it too. The violence and harm in the world, it hurts and it confuses me that it continues. It hurts and it confuses me that God says he's going to put an end to it, but he hasn't yet. 
But I also cling to him with the hope that he will keep his promise in Jesus and will put an end to it. And then the person responds with, I have no idea what, right? But we get to be present with them in the humility and the compassion of Jesus, putting on Christ and his compassion and love as we listen as we be present in the midst of hurting and be present in the midst of God's compassion and mercy. Now may the peace that passes all understanding guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.